Father, as we turn to the Bible, I pray you'd speak to us. Help me to share. Help us to hear. Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, if if half the airplanes were falling out the sky, the aviation authority would be seriously scratching their heads and doing something about it, right? I mean, seriously, imagine half the airplanes were falling out the sky. And yet the truth is half, half of marriages today end in divorce. And no one's batting an eyelid. We've got to do everything we can as a church to build strong, to teach principles, to preempt that stuff happening And I'm understanding it every time we're sharing in these things. For some of you, it's like a knife going into your heart because you've been divorced. You're going through separation. Maybe you're not married and you wish you were married. You're not even in that situation where you get to worry about that, but you wish you were. I understand when we're covering all these things. I understand it's a rough ride for many of you. I get that. But woe to us if we don't talk about these things. So today, I'm going to be sharing some things. To be honest, they're going to be pretty old school. It's not what society is saying. We're going to talk about headship and submission. And then we're going to talk about the expression of headship and submission in love and respect. And these are, I believe, these are foundational things in our understanding if we are to have successful relationships, successful marriages. And you might not be married today, but these things will prepare you for when you are married. Or you might never get married. Well, these things will pay you to be good friends to those who are married to help them on their journey. So whether you're married or not, this is incredibly relevant to you. Um, Let me start with um, a good wife's guide from the Housekeeping Monthly in 1955. Who subscribes to the Housekeeping Monthly here, by the way? Steve, well done, Steve. I I thought you would say yes, actually, to that. Um, so I'm not going to read it all, but here's kind of an old school picture there. Uh, let me read a few of what's on the screen behind me. Uh, how to be a good housewife. Prepare yourself. Take 15 minutes to rest so that you'll be refreshed when he arrives home. Touch up your makeup. Put a ribbon in your hair. And be fresh looking. He has been, uh, he's been with a lot of work-weary people. Be a little gay. That's just that's the, uh, an old term. <laughs> and a little more interesting for him. His boring day may, de- may need a lift. And one of your duties is to provide it. Say amen, husbands. <laughs> Clear away the clutter. Make one last trip through the main part of the house just before your husband arrives home. Run a dust cloth over the tables. <laughs> Minimize all noise. Um, at the time of his arrival, eliminate all noise of the washer, the dryer, and the vacuum, because you've been doing that all day long. <laughs> Encourage the children to be quiet. <laughs> right. Make him comfortable. Have him lean back in a comfortable chair or lie down in the bedroom. Have a cool or warm drink ready for him. Arrange his pillow and offer to take off his shoes. <laughs> Guys, give me an amen. This is good. Ladies, you've got to listen. This is my entire sermon. I'm going to stop after this. <laughs> Speak in low, soothing, pleasant voice. Do not ask him questions about his actions or question his judgment or integrity. <laughs> Remember, he's the master. The master of the house. And as such, will always ex- exercise uh, with, well, with fairness and truthfulness. 
you will have no right to question him. A good wife always knows her place. Come on, guys, give me an amen. Okay. <laughs> Pretty old school. Pretty old school. Very, very unlike today's culture. I, I don't know if it was like 1955 culture. I suspect it was a little bit more like that in 1955. Maybe. Very not like today's culture. Now, there's bits of it we react against, and I get that, me too. That's why we have a laugh. But there are bits of it in there, not just for what she has to do to, with him, but also for how he should interact with her. There's bits of this kind of old school way of thinking that really works. And I'm not endorsing all of that, but I am certainly saying that the Bible does teach about headship and submission, about love and respect. And I believe if we can understand these principles from the Bible in our contemporary culture, it will build for strong marriages. So here's the plan. I'm going to cover a lot of ground today, so I hope you're all switched on, had your espresso ready to go. We're going to be covering headship and submission, starting in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. And then we're going to go jumping across and look at headship and submission in Ephesians. And then we're going to look at the expression of headship and submission, which is love and respect. And we're going to really apply that at the end of the message. So things that guys can do, six things, and six things that girls can do. Husbands to wives and wives to husbands. Let's go. Genesis chapter 1. What we discover is the Bible teaches us that men and women are equal. Genesis chapter 127, it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Now, in our culture, equality equals sameness. But in the Bible, that's not what equality means. Equality in the Bible means same worth, you're valued the same, you're as important as someone else. We believe that men and women are equal, but we don't believe necessarily the same. So men and women are equal, but then in Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, we find that men and women are different. It says, in, it says the Lord God said to Adam, it is not good for the man to be alone, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the word, the term helper might seem like a demeaning term. But in the Old Testament, that word helper in the Hebrew language, when it occurs in the Old Testament, occurs 19 times. 16 of those 19 times, the term is directly applied to none other than God being our helper. So when you hear this term helper, ladies, don't hear it as a demeaning term because it's the same term that God uses to describe himself. So men and women are equal, but men and women are different. That was how God created it. Before any sin came into the world, before any heavy-handed men, before any rebellious women, before any disunity in a family unit, that's how God created it. But then sin came into the world, and that's not just the problem in marriage. That's the problem in the world. The problem in the world isn't the politicians, isn't the economy, isn't your past, isn't stuff that people did to you. The problem in this world is in every single man and woman. In the heart of a human being, we are sinful. And that's the problem right there. It says, and after sin came into the world, we turned against God. We rejected God right from the very beginning. That's why there's all the problems around us today. And as soon as that happened, God spoke to Eve. And this is what he said about relationship, because this is the truth. Sin causes disunity between us and God, but it also creates disunity between us and us. That's what it does. It ruins our relationship with God, 
And as a result of that ruin, it ruins our relationship with each other. Now, after sin came into the world, question, who sinned first, Adam or Eve? Who was it, guys? Was it the man or the lady? Who was the lady, okay? Who sinned first? Eve. But when God came into the garden, who did he ask for an accounting from? You notice that? Eve sinned first, but when God came into the garden, he, he addressed the question, where are you? To Adam. Why? The truth is because of headship. Headship means that as it goes with him, so it goes with them. Romans chapter 5 verse 12, it says, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. So sure, Eve sinned first, but as far as God was concerned, the man, yes, Eve was held responsible, but the man ultimately was held responsible as head of that family unit. Isn't that incredible? Head means that husbands will give an account. That's what head means. So if you got in your head, the head means, oh, I get to be a dictator. Yes. <laughs> That's really, you're missing the whole point. You get to have responsibility. And we're not voting on this. Either this is the way God sees it or it ain't. If you're a husband, then before God, the buck stops with you. So at the end of our life, all of us will have to give an account to God for our lives, yeah? But a husband will also have to give an account not just for his own life, but for the life of his wife and for the life of his children. That's what it means to be a husband. And the well-being of your wife is your responsibility. It says in 1 Corinthians eleven seven, the woman is the glory of man. In other words, she reflects him. If she's thriving, it's because he's a good husband. If she's not thriving, it's actually because he's not a good husband. That's tough news. But that's what the Bible teaches us. She reflects him. But what happened when sin came into the world is that this loving headship and submission relationship, which wasn't abusive, which wasn't overwhelming, which wasn't domineering or anything like that, it suddenly became warped. And we've seen that warpness in like the Victorian era where people used the Bible to justify just being kind of hotheads. We see that distortion coming through right through time. It says in Genesis 3.16, this is the distortion that happens. God said to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. What does that mean? Okay, the only other time that verb, your desire, is used, that, that particular way of phrasing it, is used in the whole of the Old Testament, is in the next chapter. And it gives us a clue as to what this means. In the next chapter, Genesis chapter 4 verse 7, God said to Cain, Sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. In other words, sin was wanting to dominate Cain. Sin was wanting to have him. Sin was wanting to suppress Cain. And it's that same word that's used in Genesis 3.16 where it says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. In other words, your desire will be for your husband means this, that when sin came into the world, all of a sudden godly submission was thrown out the window and manipulation, wanting to domineer, wanting to rule over the husbands, kicked into gear. And on the flip side, godly headship was thrown out the window and he will rule over you came into being. 
brutal, harsh, abusive husbands. Post-fall, you have resisting authority from the wife and you have the abusing of authority from husbands. And that's what puts many people off the concept of headship and submission because of the effects that sin has had on that truth. But I have to tell you that that truth existed before sin ever came into the world and that truth happens to be a key for a successful marriage relationship. Here's what John Piper said about uh, headship and submission. When sin entered the world, it ruined the harmony of marriage, not because it brought about headship and submission, but because it twisted man's humble, loving headship into hostile domination in some men and lazy indifference in others. And it twisted woman's intelligent, willing, happy, creative, articulate submission into manipulative, sweet talk, or groveling in some women and brazen insubordination in others. Sin did not create headship and submission. It ruined them and distorted them and made them ugly and destructive. The truth is this. God designed there to be order in the home where men and women are created equal, but men and women are created different. And in that way, marriages are strong. Don't be put off by the bad examples you've seen because of the fall whether it be in yourself or in someone else or your parents or someone around you, this principle builds strong marriages. As we come into the New Testament, the New Testament reiterates in many places headship and submission. None more famously than Ephesians chapter 5, which brings it right back to Jesus himself. Ephesians 5, 22. <clears throat> Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is head of the church. Notice this isn't saying that women submit to men. That's not what it's saying. It has nothing to do with whether you've got a boss who's a woman in your workplace. Nothing to do with uh, a head teacher being a woman. Nothing to do with anything like that. It's talking in the context of a marriage. In the context of that marriage, wife, submit to your husband. You don't even need to submit to someone else's husbands. You submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Folks, this only works if both parts do their part, right? If only one person's doing their part and the other person's not, you have an abuse situation going on. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Verse 33, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the husband see that she respects her husband. See how it ends? We are to husbands that love our wives, and wives, you are to respect your husband. It's the overflow of an understanding of headship and submission now we're not voting on whether Jesus gets to be head of the church or not right he is head of the church I'm not head of the church Jesus Christ the Pope is not head of the church Jesus Christ is head of the church we're not voting in that that's the Bible is really clear in that and we're also not voting on whether husbands are head of the home that's either we accept the authority of scripture in that one or we don't okay we're not voting on whether he's head of the home or not there is the question however is he a good head of the home 
The question isn't, is he head? The question is, how's he doing in that? <laughs> and that's a very different question. He might be doing rubbish like that. But what we see in this verse is this, is that being the head of the home means being like, not like your dad, not like the Victorians, not like the guy you saw in the movie who was abusive, but being head of the home means being like Jesus Christ. When the Titanic sunk 100 years ago, there was the cry went out, women and children first. And about 70% of the survivors of that disaster were women and children. Why? Because there was an understanding that men, when it came down to it, you would sacrifice yourself so that women could live. That was the understanding. Where did that understanding come from? It came from a Christian worldview that understood headship and submission. You see, apparently, there was an interview, there was an article written in a, in a woman's magazine recently that asked the question, in a hundred years after the Titanic, today, would it be women and children first? And a lot of the writers, uh, people wrote into the, to the uh, magazine and said, no, we don't think it should be women and children first. That's a bit unfair. We think it should be equal opportunity. <laughs> well, sorry, guys at Destiny, when it comes to the Titanic, you're going to die. That's how it's going to go. Because we do believe in women and children first. Why do we believe in that? Here's why we believe in that. Here's where they got that from. Here's where. Because one moment in history, a man who happens also to be God, who had no sin, died on a cross for everybody's sin. He laid his life down for people. And when people are his... He calls them his bride. When you become a follower of Jesus who died in your place on the cross, you become his bride. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus lay his life down for his bride. So therefore, husbands, you want to know what it looks like to be husbands? You're going to look like Jesus. Not like any other negative example. But Jesus, a servant-hearted, sacrificial unconditionally loving man. That's what it means to be head of your home. And by the way, today you might not know Jesus, but Jesus knows you. And when he died on that cross, he did it for you. He did it because he knows you and he knows you needed that. I mean, if he doesn't die for your sin, you're gonna have to die for your own sin. It's called hell. But you don't need to because he loved you so much he did it for you. And he died in your place on a cross 2,000 years ago. He resurrected on the third day. He's alive right now. He's in this room by his spirit. And today, if you put your faith in him, you'll be saved forever. So at the end of the service, I'm going to give you the opportunity. If, if you're here today and you've never yet put your faith in Jesus, who's here right now, your savior, then you can be saved. But guys, let it be really clear to you. Being head of the home means being like Jesus. And it says, let his, every one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, when that's happening, it's like a bicycle. When, when, she, when she receives love from the husband, his, he loves her. It's like him pushing that pedal down. And what happens to the other pedal? The other pedal comes up. In other words, she's empowered to respect her husband. Wow, he's been like Jesus. 
He's laying his life down. He's leading not like a a domineering, narrow-minded hothead. He's leading like a servant-hearted, Christ-following believer. And he's loving me. Wow. And she feels empowered. I respect a man like that. And as she respects him, he's empowered. Wow, I'm respected. I'm going to love her more. And all of a sudden, you've got pedals moving. Now, in the old-fashioned bikes, remember those bikes when you pedal backwards and it would break? (laughs) Who had a bike like that? When you pedal backwards, it would suddenly break. Um, It's the same in marriage. If you say, stuff him, I'm not going to respect him. He's going to do some stuff worthy of respect before I respect him. (laughs) And then he said, I'm not going to love her until she shows me some respect. I get nothing from her. All I get is told what I'm not doing. I'm not going to love her. And all of a sudden, you've got a backwards pedaling and you've got brakes full on and it kills relationships. You cannot manipulate them playing their part. You can only do what you can do. Do what you can do and then trust God that as you sow, you will reap. That what they will do, what they will do and God will work on them, but you work on you with God's help. So, love and respect. Here's how it works. Let me recommend a book. It's called Love and Respect by Dr. Emerson Egerich, and it's a fantastic book. Love and respect, the love she most desires and the respect he desperately needs. I encourage you, if you want to take this forward, read this book. It is the best book on this subject. Dr. Emerson conducted a whole lot of research, and this book is based on the research as well as based on some of the verses we've read. What you find, he revealed that University of Washington studied 2,000 couples for a 20-year period, and this is the conclusion of their study. We now know that what makes for successful marriages is love and respect. And those two are the expressions of headship and submission. If they're present in marriage, the marriage will succeed, the research said. But if they're not present, it will not succeed. So when you've got a tension going on in your marriage, the tension might be over money, it might be over sex, it might be over kids, it might be over in-laws or outlaws, it might be over work, or maybe you're under a lot of financial, or maybe you're unemployed, or maybe whatever. There's a whole lot of pressure in your relationship. When that's happening, here's what can happen. In that moment of heated tension, if in a moment he speaks unlovingly to his wife, guess what happens? It deflates her. And she reacts to him. And he thinks in that moment, she's reacting to the issue that they're discussing. But she's not. She's reacting to the unloving way in which you're discussing it. So the reaction happens. If in a heated moment, she says something and it comes across to him, whether she meant it this way or not, it comes across to him as disrespectful. What he does is he reacts. Now she thinks he's reacting to do with the issue they're discussing, money or whatever. But he's not reacting against the issue. He's reacting against the way she interacted with him about that issue. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but you know exactly... I'm telling by no show of hands, but the sniggers in the auditorium and the digs, I can see you all digging in your wife. Husband, listen to that. See, that's what happens. And, and what, here's what happens. When he reacts to her treating him disrespectfully, how does he respond to her? Unlovingly. 
And when she experiences the unloving reaction, she responds often in a way that he perceives to be disrespectful. And before you know it, you've got backwards pedaling, big style, brakes are full on. And what was an issue, a discussion about money, all of a sudden became about something other than money and neither of you knew it was about anything other than money. And maybe after, even after the argument, you think, you didn't realize that wasn't actually about money. It was about the way we interacted about that subject. Love and respect. Eugene Emerson in the, um, sorry, Emerson Egerich in, this, in the book, he reveals a survey that he conducted with 7,000 people. He asked the question, when you're in conflict with your spouse, do you feel unloved in that moment? or disrespected when in conflict? He asked the 2,000 people, sorry, 7,000 people, and the response was this. 83% of men said that they felt disrespected in that moment. 72% of women said they felt unloved in that moment. They were asked the same question, and the men instantly associated with the disrespecting, and the women, by far, instantly associated with the unloving. This is not something the Bible just says. The Bible says it, so just believe it. Wives, love your husbands. Husband, sorry, wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wife. That's not what, just what the Bible says. That has been proven in research. God wrote the Bible knowing exactly how we are wired and what you need to receive for love to work well in your life. So I'm going to start with the husbands. Let's hear it, ladies. Now you cheer me on. I'm going to go at him, Okay. I'm going to say, now we're going to go into the wisdom books. Six things to husbands about, six things, husbands, that you need to understand and I need to understand. And I'm not speaking these, about these things as if, hmm, I'm the great husband here. I'm not. And she, she probably won't tell you. But I'm telling you, I'm not the best of husbands. I'm working really on these things myself. So I preach to myself as well as to you. Six things from Proverbs about how to love your wife. Number one, husbands, take responsibility in your home. Proverbs 21, 25 says, the lazy will come to ruin, for their hands refuse to work. How do you define your masculinity? You know, I, I, I know masculinity has been defined for us all the time through media and through film and through your mates. How do you define masculinity? Masculinity has got nothing to do with whether you can burp your ABC, right? <laughs> nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with what kind of car you drive, how loudly you can fart. Nothing to do with any of those things that you deem to be masculine. Biblically, masculinity has got to do with, do you take responsibility? You see, monkeys can do that stuff, right? This is to do with, do you take responsibility before God? That's, that's the bottom line. Are you taking responsibility for your life, for your wife, for your kids? That's the measure of masculinity. There is, we're living in a culture today that would encourage men to stay adolescent as long as possible. We're trying to prolong adolescence. You know, don't get married young, we're being told. You know, we're being told in your 20s, have an Xbox or a huge big screen, right? Spend all your time doing that. It doesn't matter if you get a job or not. You know, society is trying to prolong adolescence as long as possible. That's not in the Bible. People in the Bible, often some of the greatest heroes in the Bible were taking major responsibility, playing major roles and changing society even in their early 20s. And you can do the same, guys. I want you to be proactive guys. I don't want you to be layabouts. I don't want you to be sitting around eating potato chips and playing Xbox all day, 
we're taking no effort or making no initiative or not starting going for looking for work. And if there's no jobs there, sure, go volunteer somewhere. Use your gifts, take responsibility, stop being a layabout. So, amen. So learn from Jesus. What did Jesus do? Jesus took responsibility even when it wasn't his problem. The Bible says that Jesus had no sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. What does that mean? It means that he took responsibility for something that wasn't his problem. Because that's what husbands do. Husbands don't say, not my responsibility. They say, this is my responsibility, even if it's not my problem. They make it their problem. Here's how Jesus was, took responsibility. Okay, He took initiative. Jesus took the initiative. Jesus took the initiative when it came to reconciliation. Husbands, you need to take initiative when it comes to reconciliation in your home. Jesus got off the throne of heaven to come to earth to reconcile the world to himself. Husbands, don't you go into this mope out of pride and she's got to be the one to ask forgiveness first. You're the head. You take responsibility for reconciliation in your home. Be the first one to be in there and humble yourself. That's what Jesus did. Jesus had a lifelong pursuit of his bride. He didn't just bring us to himself. He pursues us for all eternity. That's how Jesus interacts with his bride. And husbands, I want to encourage you, don't just pursue her until you get the ring in your finger and then you kind of let all the defenses down. Now she's mine now. And you just kind of, <laughs> you become like this kind of rubbish guy. Right, no, no. I mean, that's, that's warped. I mean, you've heard me say this before. I think it's a, it's a fantastic joke. It's not in the Bible. Uh, the, uh, the husband turns to his wife and says, honey, let's try a different position tonight. And she says, okay, you stand at the ironing board and I'll lay in the sofa and fire, right? I mean, that, that's often how it goes, right? What happens is you, you put all this effort and you're all respectable, you know, you don't never break wind, you're always smart, you're always acting all nice, you're da-da-da, until you get the ring in her finger and then all of a sudden, hey, I could be myself again. woo And you just, and you just, you, you just, you, you stop pursuing her. You stop treating her like a queen. You stop treating her with respect. You, st- you stop open. Now, I don't do everything great, but I always open the car door for Angie because I know that if I want her to treat me like a king, I want to treat her like a queen. And so you've you got to not take the other person for granted. And Jesus is like that. Jesus being head includes things like protecting. He protects the church. You should protect your wife. It means speaking lovingly to. It means tending. It means caring. Jesus does all these things with his church. Husbands, being a person who's proactive and takes responsibility, that's what it looks like in your home. Secondly, be a humble and teachable husband. It says in Proverbs twelve fifteen, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. You know, oftentimes men are known for their strong-mindedness. They're like hotheads. They can't be told. Guys, honestly, men, that often is our weakness. But what the Bible tells us is that this, that it's a foolish person 
who's always thinks they've got it right. That's a fool. The Bible teaches that a wise person can listen to counsel. You see, the person who's all insecure, they've got to, be, look, they've got to make themselves look like, no, no, what I said was right. They've, because they're insecure. And they've got to get their identity from feeling like they're the one who said they're always the right thing. You have to be a secure person and a humble person to be able to be wise by listening to someone else's advice. I have to tell you, often so many of the things that have happened in this church that have been a success has come as a direct result of Angie giving me advice on something or me asking, Angie, what do you think of this? And her opinion massively counts to me. Massively. I, I, I actually, oftentimes I see it as the very word of God to me. Wow, God, you have blessed me with this woman, this wife. And her words carry such wisdom. It has shaped this local church. So listen to her, husbands. Don't be a hothead. Listen to what your wife's, even in doing so, you're showing love. Thirdly, be proactive in raising your kids. Proverbs 1 verse 8. Hear my son your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Now, how often is it left to the mum to do the raising of the kids? How often is it the responsibility given to the mum? And if there's been a family breakup, then the single parent mum raises that kid. And how often is the dad really involved? Dads, if you're a single parent dad here today, if you're divorced, I would urge you, even though it's not what you would ideally want it to be, be as involved as you can be in your kids' lives. Husbands, be involved in raising your kids. Don't abdicate responsibility for that. Be thoroughly involved with that. Now, Angie is so much better academically raising our kids than I am. She is phenomenal. I mean, she'll sit down with them and help them. But I take responsibility before God, making sure, and Angie does the same, but I I absolutely am totally involved in the spiritual life of my kids. I'm talking to them every day about Jesus. I'm, I'm laying hands on them every night. Every night I lay hands on my kids. I, I read the Bible with them. I talk to them about the Lord. I involve them in conversations about God. I, I, I ask them the deep questions. I ask them really how they're doing. I get involved emotionally in my kids' lives. Dads, husbands, be like that with your kids. Martin Luther said this, a house is actually a school and a church and the head of the household is the pastor in his house. Dads, see yourself as a pastor over your little church, your family, and raise that church in the Lord. Now set, and I would urge you, not just with your teaching, but with the example you set, even in your failure, dads, even when you fail, use the way you handle failure as an example to your kids. Some of us have not lived perfectly. We've made mistakes. But show your kids an example of, ah, that's what it looks like to take responsibility repent for sin, confess to others, and get on track again. That's a valuable lesson, because one day those kids will fail. And they will have in their minds an example, maybe even from their dad, of someone who failed, repented, confessed, took responsibility, and got going again. So give an example to them. Dr. George Allen Reeker is a professor of neuropsychiatry and behavioral science at the University of South Carolina. In his book, Shaping Your Child's Sexual Identity, he said this, 
We have seen how the mother and father's child-rearing practices have an important influence on their child's sexual identity and their development. The sex role examples of the parents provide a learning situation for the child. The father's active leadership in the home and his affectionate involvement with his sons and daughters has a strong impact on promoting their normal sexual identification. In other words, they turn out sexually healthy. At the same time, the mother's positive attitude towards men and her submission to the father's leadership in the home are more important for normal sexual identification in both her sons and daughters. In other words, as you model and as you live out these principles in front of your kids, it impacts their future in a big way. Fourthly, be a faithful husband. Proverbs 7.25 Do not let your heart, say your heart, turn aside to her ways and do not stray into her paths. Don't allow yourself men Lust is more a man's problem than a woman's problem. Although, having said that, it is the case that 23% of, of people asking for help with sexual addiction these days are women. So pornography is a big issue in women's life as well. If you missed our talk on pornography and lust a few weeks ago, please download that talk. We take a lot of time to unpack how you can come free from these things. And also use that talk as a tool. Send people the link who you know are struggling. As you're talking to people and you suddenly discover they have an issue, use that talk as a tool. Give them that talk. The advice there will help them. But, but men, this is predominant, lust is predominantly a guy issue. And the truth is this. You have got to not let your heart desire anyone else other than your wife. Here it says you should not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't stray onto her paths. In other words, let alone going there, don't even go near being there. And I, here's what I would simply encourage you. If you're in a workplace scenario, guys, where you're working closely with girls on a regular basis, guard your heart. I would avoid, if you at all possibly can, working in a room alone with a girl for more than a short period of time. Church staff, we have a policy. I won't meet a girl by myself in my room. Not going to happen. And how do I pass the girls? Because I do pass the girls. Well, sometimes I'll meet them in a coffee shop, so it's a public place. Or sometimes I'll meet them downstairs in the cafe here where there's others present. But I won't meet, or on the balcony or something like that, but I won't, meet the one, I won't do the one-to-one behind doors. Don't allow yourself to become, don't ever discuss your marital problems with someone of the opposite sex, guys or girls. Just don't do that. Preempt issues. Be a faithful husband. Fifthly, do not be an abusive husband. Proverbs 14, 17. A quick-tempered man does foolish things. Proverbs eleven twenty nine: He who troubles his own house will inherit the winds. See, are you a locust or a bee? A locust consumes its environment. A bee enhances and adds to its environment and pollinates its environment. The truth is this. Jesus was both tough and tender. You can think of Jesus' ministry and you can think of times when he was tough. You see him being tough in the way he challenged the Pharisees. You see him being tough when he went to the cross. And you see many times in Jesus' ministry when he was tender, the way he interacted with kids, the way he said to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. You have Jesus being tough and tender and husbands, you've got to learn to be tough and tender. And the truth is this, you've got to be tough for your family but tender 
with your family. You're going to be tough for your family. When you're going through those hard times, you're being tough for them. You're not going to quit. You're going to hang on in there. Even emotionally, when you're feeling drained, you're standing. But you're going to be tender with them. Some guys do the opposite. They're tough with their family, but they're tender with everyone else outside of their family. And that's not how God wants you to be. Some guys, they get such a rough ride at work, they're a walkover at work, they're treated badly at work, and they feel like they're disempowered at work. So when they get home and they're with their wife, who they are more powerful than, they take out their frustration from work on their wife, and they start overpowering their wife. Men, if that's you, you need to repent. You're tough for them, not tough with them. Sixthly, don't be an absent husband. Proverbs 27, 8. Like a bird that wanders from her nest, so is a man who wanders from his home. I would just very simply caution you. If you're, you're in a career or something like that or doing a course of studies that require you're going to spend long periods of time away from home, I would change career. I would pursue another course of studies. If you studying a particular course gets you a degree but loses your marriage, stuff the degree. I'm serious. If, you, if you're having to spend prolonged periods of time away from your husband or your wife or your kids for the sake of studies, then you have got a totally wrong priority. You need to prioritize. Now, so in seasons, okay, so seasons happen. A month here, a month there, sure. But if it's years or like several months and it's, it's an ongoing pattern, this will undermine your marriage and your marriage is more important than anything else on earth even though it doesn't look as impressive in terms of letters after your name. How to respect your husbands. Okay. Girls, this is your turn. Firstly, be wise in how you speak. Women, you are so powerful. I mean, I don't mean in terms of weightlifting. I mean, in terms of the power you have in your husband's life is so powerful. Your opinion affects him more than anyone else's opinion. Good or bad. It says in Proverbs 18.21, the tongue has power of life and death and those who love it will eat its fruit. If you are respectful to your husband in the way you speak, you will empower him to become all that God wants him to be. You will empower him to be respectable. But if you do the opposite, it ruins I had a friend years ago, he's no longer alive, and he was a Christian for many, many years, and married for many, many years, and then out of the blue, his wife, in a moment of tension, brought out a book, and in that book, she'd written down every mistake he had made for the last several decades of their marriage. That book, I mean, seriously, that is nuts. If you've got that book, bin that book right now. And if you've got a book in here, I don't know, just delete, press a, you know, alt control delete, delete it from in there, get rid of it somehow. But I mean that, it nearly crippled his marriage. But words that are spoken, unbelievably powerful. Satan is called the accuser. Women, don't go partnering with Satan. Don't be that one. And some of you say, well, I can't respect him because of his past mistakes. Now I understand that. And that's a journey you've got to go through. Because forgiveness is given, but trust must be earned. I understand that. But let yourself go on that journey. Don't hold on to it as if it's your right, that sense of disrespect. 
you understand the more you disrespect, the more you're undermining the future of your marriage. Fight for coming to a place of peace, even regarding the past, so that you can re- you're released to res- respect in order to build a strong marriage. How does God change people? God changes people by speaking words of encouragement to them. It's not that God doesn't challenge, he does. The book of Revelation starts off with several challenges, but they're, they're packaged with encouragements. See, when God turns up to Gideon, this is what he says in Judges 6, 12, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The weird thing is, Gideon had had no military experience. I mean, you hear that, you think, oh, wow, he must have been some great military campaign guy. No, no, Gideon had no military experience because God wasn't declaring what he'd been. God was declaring who he was in God's sight and who he was going to become. And that's empowered him to become all that God wanted him to be. So wives, if you're constantly telling your husband what he's not, rather than telling him what he is and what he could be, then you are ruining your marriage with your words. Guard your words. It says, those who love it will eat its fruit. In other words, those who love to learn to use your words to build up rather than to pull down, you're going to benefit. You're going to reap the reward. You're going to enjoy the... In other words, you will benefit from a stronger marriage. Think, how can I encourage my husbands? Send him the text message. Send him that email. Give him the call in the middle of the day. You know, I appreciate how you took the rubbish out this morning. I'm so glad you're in my life. The way you handled that situation with our kids was amazing. I honor you. And it might be at first, ladies, you're having to look real hard to find something to encourage him with. Well, find that one thing and major in that. You always talk about that. You always talk about that. Why is that? Secondly, before him on the inside, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. How do you guard your heart on the inside? How do you keep that heart for him? Okay, pray. Pray for him. You know, if you're constantly praying for your husbands in good times and bad times, in a sense of being let down or in a sense of being encouraged, doesn't matter, you're praying for him, that will help you to have a good heart because the Bible says, out of your heart, your life flows. Your marriage comes from your heart. Your success comes from your heart. Everything comes from your heart. And if you have a good heart towards your husband, you're going to have a strong marriage. Number three, listen, I'm aware time is going because this preacher is going on a wee while. And I'm aware, parents, you're probably going to have to pick up your kids, but guys, don't put the sign up for another five minutes. I'm going to hold you in here because I really want you to get this because it's so important. I'm going to go through these as quick as I can. Thirdly, don't put him down in front of others. This is so important. Now listen, you could put him down in front of others behind his back. That's called gossiping. Proverbs 20, verse 19. He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a gossip. You mock him. You laugh at him behind his back. You put him down in front of your work colleagues. Some of you know what this is like. In, in workplace, you get, you get, guys do this with their wives as well. And you hear them putting down their wives or their husbands when they're not there to defend themselves. That person, your husband and wife, should be the most important person in your life, second to God. And you're literally damaging yourself when you deride them in public. Now, when gossip happens, it goes into the atmosphere and it does affect your marriage even if they didn't hear it. Proverbs 12, 12, 12 verse 4 says, An excellent wife is a crown to her husband's. 
but she who shames him is like rottenness to his bones. Are you a crown or a cancer? Are you undermining him, whittling him away on the inside, the core of his being, with constantly shaming him publicly? Or are you crowning him? I have to tell you, in 17 years of marriage, I've never once heard Angie put me down in public. And it's not because she wouldn't have ammunition. I'm telling you, I'm not a perfect man. But she's never once put me down in public. Never once. She's a crown to me. Fourthly, don't be a nagging wife. Apparently, I don't know where they got this information, but apparently... um, there are two lines going into heaven. And there is one line and it says, for those who were bossed by their wives, and there's this other line over here and it says, for those who weren't bossed by their wives. And apparently there was a huge line of guys behind that queue saying, for those who were bossed by their wives. And there's one dude standing courageously over on this side under the line saying, for those who were not bossed by their wives. The Archangel Michael came over to the dude and said, mate, you're the only guy who's here. I said, my wife told me to stand here. <laughs> I don't know if it's a true story or not, but. Proverbs 21:19 in the Amplified, I love this. It says this. I want you all to memorize this verse. It is better to dwell in the corner of a housetop on a flat oriental roof exposed to all kinds of weather <laughs> than in a house shared with a nagging, quarrelsome, and fault-finding woman. You know, get your wee camping stove, sit in your roof. You'll be happier up there, mate, I tell you. You know, if you, if you spend all your time trying to fix your husband, he's going to start acting like he's broken. It will ruin your marriage. My suggestion is that it's not that he's always got it right. It's just that you've got to know how to handle your disagreement well. Guys typically re- react too quickly. They're full of pride, okay? And that's their sin. But if you want to learn to interact with them well, here's my suggestion. Say to them something like, honey, could I have 10 minutes just to talk to you about something that's concerning me? Now, what that does is, he knows there's a time limit, okay? Okay. <laughs> I can do that. All right? Although, if, if, if you say, can we talk? He's instantly thinking, oh, there goes my night. There goes, right, there, there goes hours. Give him a time limit. Say, can I have 10 minutes? And then say, would you mind if I talk to you about something that's concerning me? Ask permission. Don't just throw it at him. Now, you don't have to do that. Of course you don't. But it's going to help you if you do. Fifthly, don't be a quarrelsome wife. Proverbs 19, 13. A quarrelsome wife is as annoying as a constant... <laughs> dripping. Proverbs twenty one nineteen. It is better to live in a desert than with a contentious and vexing woman. You're a quarrelsome wife, some of you are saying. I'm not a quarrelsome wife. Okay. Ever wonder why he's always late home from work? Ever wonder why he's always so keen to go work in the shed? Ever wonder why he loves his hobby so much when he didn't used to? Ever wonder why he's always wanted to be with his mates? Why? Because sometimes, it's not always the case, but sometimes it's the case that he doesn't really want to be in the home. Because there's always an issue. There's always something to contend about. It's not a haven for him. And sixthly and finally, be a forgiving and a forgetting wife. Someone once said, any man, 
Any married man should forget his mistakes. There's no use two people remembering the same thing. That's not in Proverbs. Don't keep pointing out his faults. God's not like that. When God forgives, he forgets. And he calls us to be exactly the same. And today, by the way, if you put your trust in Jesus, he forgives your sin. And the Bible says he will separate you from your sin as far as the east is from the west. Never to be remembered again. It says in Proverbs 17, 9, he who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. In other words, sure you've got to deal with the sin, sure you've got to confess, sure you've got to repent, but a moment comes where, right, okay, we're not going to talk about it again. And you might still feel raw about it, but you just don't go there again. Why? Because you're more interested in building healing and love and blessing into your marriage than you are to resurrecting a dead sin. When God's forgiven, God forgets. God no longer interacts with you on the basis of that sin. So he calls you to do exactly the same, especially wives, hear that point. Because often women are often the ones who will remember those things because they're emotional and they remember these things and they remember how it affected them. And we have compassion for that by more interest in you building a strong marriage. So it's pretty old school. Headship and submission. Expressed in love and respect. But 50% of the planes were falling out the sky, we'd be saying, what do we need to do differently? And if half the marriages in this world are falling apart, I would suggest we've forgotten some of the old school principles that the Bible teaches, which builds for strong marriages. Let's pray. If you're sitting beside your spouse, you might want to hold their hand in this moment. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your love for us, God. God, thank you you've given us the Bible. Thank you you've given us this book that has got truth and wisdom, God. It's not always politically correct. It's not always popular as far as the culture is concerned. But God, I believe that the Bible stands up to reason. It stands in the light of research. It stands in the light of scientific discovery. It stands and it works in relationships. God, we're here. All of us are here as those who have not done well in these things. God, we, we've, some of us have grown, in fam, grown up in families where we've looked on our parents and seeing, man, they didn't do that and they didn't do this. And whether we realize it or not, we start reflecting those same attributes in our own life. We've learned that from our parents. God, some of us are husband, as husbands, we've really not treated our wives in a loving way. We've been so into ourselves and we've never laid our lives down like Jesus did for the church. We repent, God, for that. Some of the wives here, God, have been so disrespectful, starting with the disrespect in their heart. And whether they realize it or not, they've taken on Satan's accusation of their husband and they've partnered. And God, today the women say, God, I repent. And today everyone says, God, we repent. God, we want to live our lives for the glory of God on this earth. And we take our eyes off ourselves for a minute and we put our eyes onto the one who died for us, the ultimate groom, the ultimate husband, the ultimate head, the ultimate leader. 
Jesus, you're perfect in all your ways. Jesus, you're magnificent in your love. You, you had no sin and yet you took responsibility for our sin. You died in our place to take away all our fallenness. And that cross has power to cleanse us and power to change us. So please change us in our marriages. Save us in eternity. And do your work in us and through us. Thanks you're alive, Jesus, risen from the dead. In you, we can all succeed in this life and in eternity. Despite our failures. Thank you. Okay. Just each of you responds to God. Pray back your response. Today, if you're not a believer in Jesus, while everyone else is praying, I want to help you in particular today. If you're here and you know that you and God are not yet connected, let me help you connect with him today. If you're here and you're saying, Peter, today I want to put my faith in Jesus. I want to become a follower of Jesus, the one who died for me and rose again. Then let me help you connect with him. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer with me, just one line at a time. And I invite you to pray this prayer under your breath. And this is your moment to commit yourself to God. Pray with me. Dear Lord God, thank you for your love for me. Jesus, thank you. You died for me to take away my sin, to save me forever. Thank you. I believe in you. And I believe in the third day you rose from the dead. I believe you're alive right now. Jesus, today I become a follower of yours. Take first place in my life. Be Lord of my life. Thanks for hearing my prayer.